Last week, we continued our study of the book of Genesis, and we, we did so by taking a look uh, at two figures, uh, pretty important figures, uh, Jacob and Esau, two twin brothers, children of Isaac and Rebekah, grandchildren to Abraham and Sarah, to whom it was promised that, that a great nation would come from them, and that through the children that would come eventually, uh, the entire world would be blessed. But, but it was through one of these brothers, and not the other, that these promises would come to pass. We saw last week that it was God's design that the older would serve the younger. In other words, though Jacob was, was second out of the womb, though he wasn't his father's favorite, though he was a less likable figure, frankly, um, with highly questionable integrity, his name being synonymous with deceiving, Despite all of this, last week's passage concluded with Jacob deceiving his father and securing the blessing. But though his plan was successful, his actions would have enormous consequences. Consequences that we are going to look at today. So let us read God's word together. We will begin uh, in Genesis chapter 27, verses 41 through 45. And then we will take a look at chapter 29 verses 13 through 30. You can find the text on pages 22 through 24 in your pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. But with the words of Esau, her older son were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury turns away until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you back from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? And then skipping over to to chapter 29, verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. And then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. And so Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. And then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. 
But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went in her. And Laban gave uh, his female servant Zilpha to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other one also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also. He loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your word, uh, a word that, that at times can feel foreign to us. There's cultural norms, um, there's language, that there's all sorts of uh, ideas and thoughts that, that don't necessarily feel like something that we're familiar with. And yet, Father, this is your word, and you speak through it. And so would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are receptive uh, to it? And would you point us to Jesus in it? Give us hope, encourage us, we pray, all in Christ's name. Amen. The title of today's sermon is Say Uncle, um, which is an expression that I think most of us, you know, I'm somewhat familiar with maybe. Someone is in the midst of a, of a battle or, or a match or a contest, and then they would tell their opponent, say uncle, say uncle, in order to get them to submit, in order to get them to surrender. Uh, because in making this statement, the opponent would essentially be admitting their defeat. But though we, may, we, we hear, say uncle, and, and we know what that means... Where exactly did this expression come from? Why? Why uncle? And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm feeling that uncles have gotten a bad rap for so long. Um, I, I, want, I investigated. Um, where, where does this expression come from? And there's a couple of, of theories. There's a Latin expression um, that, yeah, that would basically be acknowledging a person's superiority to them. There's also some 19th century joke about a parrot that involves saying uncle. I don't know. People ultimately don't know where this expression came from. But, but as we read our text, I couldn't help but wonder if, if it had something to do with Genesis chapter 29 and, and, and Laban. Um, because though we don't deal with the real wrestling match until next week, what we find in this passage is Jacob having a contest of sorts with his uncle Laban where there is a winner. And there is a loser who is forced to say, uncle. This morning, we're going we're to talk about the subject of, of submission. And from our text, I want us to examine two aspects of submission that I think we see here. First, I, I want us to look at submission under the heavy hand of the world. And second, while he isn't mentioned in this text at all, I want us to look at submission under the gracious hand of God. So the heavy hand of the world, the gracious hand of God. First of all, the, the heavy hand of the world. One of my favorite television shows uh, is the show Mad Men. Um, 
just to warn you, it, it, it can be pretty worldly at times by any definition. But the premise is brilliant. Basically, Mad Men is the story of the 1960s, experienced through the lives of characters who are working in the advertising industry on, on Madison Avenue in New York City. But these characters are not only experiencing the 1960s and the social and political upheaval, they're helping to shape it as well through television commercials, through print advertisements, through billboards. They're presenting to people the good life, showing people this is what you should value and then telling them where to purchase it. In the very first episode, the, the main character, Don Draper, makes the statement, advertising is about one thing, happiness. And Draper attempts to, to tap into that human desire for happiness and, and cultivate that longing and steer people towards the fulfillment of that longing. And, of course, the reason that he's doing this is to cash in. At one point, somebody asked him, how do you sleep at night? His response, on a bed made of money. And as he continues to cash in um, over and over again, because he himself will later say, what is happiness? It's the moment before you need more happiness. Happiness, fulfillment, longing for satisfaction. This is something that human beings are constantly longing for, searching for, whether it be through power or prestige possessions, or other people, the constant pursuit of pleasure, something to give us fulfillment. And this is the way of the world. And of course, one of the problems with this being the way of the world is that if, if six billion people are functioning that way, searching for happiness through power, possession, pleasure, prestige, people, whatever, my pursuit of those things will inevitably collide with your pursuit of those same things, and thus conflict. But another problem with this, being the state of things, is that there's always going to be people out there like Don Draper, profiteers, looking to cash in on people's desperate desire for happiness. Enter Laban. In our passage, we, we find Jacob on the run from his brother who, who, who wants to kill him. And, and he looks for refuge with his uncle, his mother's brother, who, who seems like a nice enough guy. And he ran out to meet him, embraced him, kissed him, brought him into his house. He gave him a, a, a warm, familial greeting. He even allows Jacob to stay with him for a month. A month's a long time. I mean, in my house, you know, long weekend, we're probably about ready to push you along. A month is a long, long time. And, and, and it's Laban, not Jacob, who brings up the conversation about wages, about compensation. But though Laban may seem safe, Jacob, of all people, should know that someone being family doesn't immune you to the ways of the world. Because Uncle Laban is totally setting Jacob up. Because Jacob gives off a stench. It's the stench of desperation. And the way of the world is to see that kind of vulnerability, and to exploit it. But, but how? How does Jacob look so vulnerable? Well, first, I mean, you get a, a single guy, 
Shows up. No wife, no kids, no servants, no possession. He's just looking for a place to crash. That, that sends up some red flags. Fathers, this is not the guy you want your daughters bringing home. He's broke, and he's on the run from something or, or someone. It smells fishy. And, and while bachelorhood may have its perks, back in, in this day, that wasn't really the case. One could only assume that Jacob is out looking for a wife. After all, Padam Haram, that's where Jacob's father found Jacob's mother, Laban's sister, Rebekah. And so it only followed that, that, that Laban w- would assume that his daughters would have been of interest to Jacob, particularly Rachel. Now, now typically in those days, what would happen is that there would be this uh, a bride price, a, a payment of sorts that was given to the bride's family by the, the, the suitor. And now if that offends you, I, I get it. Um, in fact, I think the author of Scripture gets it too because it's not really presented in, in the most positive light. He's just reporting facts here. But, but, but Jacob didn't have any money. That's the point. He brought nothing with him, and therefore he had nothing to give. That is, except his labor. Laban knows this. And Laban knows exactly how this conversation is going to play out before he even asked the question. But what may have been surprising to Laban is, is just how eager Jacob was. Because not only is Jacob economically destitute, he's also emotionally immature. The offer to, to work for seven years in exchange for Rachel's hand, it, it speaks to just how infatuated Jacob was with her. Now, some of us read that story and, and, and we're, we, we see romance. We see a Hallmark movie waiting to happen right here, okay? What's wrong with Jacob promising seven years of his life for, for Rachel's hand in marriage? A man putting himself out there, showing the woman, showing the father, showing the community just how much he loves her. Some of you ladies are thinking, oh, if, if only a man would do that, for me. He might even be sitting next to you. Who knows? Um, But just a question, ladies. While the sentiment of going above and beyond is certainly understandable, is there any point where it it could just come across as kind of desperate, kind of needy, maybe even a little unwise? Because what Jacob offers to Laban is so exorbitant Four times the normal price of anything that would have been a normal bride price. And that's his his initial offer. Could that be a cause for concern, ladies? Because while we certainly see romance in verse 20, Jacob served for seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. It's beautiful. But if you look at verse 21, which we won't read again, it seems a little less romantic. Jacob is, is interested in more than just a good conversation. We, we've come a long way from may I have your daughter's hand in marriage. It, it's, it's brazen. It's aggressive. It's unwise. But from the get-go, Jacob was so taken with Rachel, particularly her, her physical attributes, that he's lost all good sense of judgment which is what the desire for sex can do to people. I mean, think about the amount of stupid 
irrational, irresponsible decisions that have to do with this subject. There's a national headline every day about it. But here's the thing, it's not just that. It's a desire, any desire that human beings crave, any desire that human beings chase after has the potential to lead you to do something stupid. And the reason that human beings are so capable of doing irrational, stupid, irresponsible things in pursuit of what they long for is because, in in the words of one of my favorite authors, James K.A. Smith, human beings are not primarily thinkers. Human beings are primarily lovers. There's a great book on this. I highly recommend it. It's called You Are What You Love. That's his premise. Human beings are not primarily thinkers. Human beings are primarily lovers. God made us to be desirous creatures, to seek after fulfillment and pleasure. There's nothing wrong necessarily with desire. The desire to worship something, it's innate with God himself being what we are ultimately longing for. But having rejected God and his rule, human beings don't stop having affections. We don't just stop worshiping. Instead, our hearts are are looking for something to attach themselves to, something to give our lives pleasure and fulfillment and meaning and purpose. We're going to worship something. We're going to spend our time, our money, our energy pursuing something. However, as broken, sinful people, what we desire, why we desire it, and what we will do to get it is now off. It's misdirected. And so while Jacob here, he seems pretty rude, seems pretty aggressive, seems extremely unwise, Jacob is providing a picture of someone desperate, desperate for affection. He's looking for romantic love to fill that void. But as easy as it is, we pick on Jacob for being so obvious. Can we not all relate to this on some level? Searching for something, desperate for something that can give meaning and purpose to our lives, something that we will spend our time, our energy, our money pursuing, no matter how unwise it may be? Can we not all relate? And so while being economically and destitute and emotionally immature, that may be a bad combo if you're looking for a son-in-law, a father, looking for a husband for his daughters. It's a great combo if you're a con man looking to exploit someone. And so Jacob makes makes this crazy offer. Laban gladly brings uh, brings Jacob onto the payroll. But if you notice, take a look at verse 19. Laban never really agrees to this. It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man stay with me. Okay, that's, that's great, but that's not necessarily a yes. The stipulations of this contract haven't been completely ironed out. But at this point, that's not really of any concern to Jacob. He's heard what he wants to hear, and he goes to work. It all seems to be going to plan. He works his seven years. Laban arranges a wedding feast. The relationship is consummated. 
But in verse 25, it states plainly, in the morning, it was Leah. Jacob's longing for Rachel left him vulnerable to be exploited. And such, again, is the way of the world, to take advantage of the weak, the vulnerable, the foolish. Because Jacob lacks wisdom, which incidentally is why God gives us wisdom literature in his scripture so we can learn how to be wise as his people. However, simply knowing intellectually what is wise does not solve our problem because, again, human beings are not primarily thinkers. We're lovers. We want, we crave, we desire. And here's the thing. This this imagery, in the morning, it was Leah. That's not only the case if we fail to get what we're after. Even if we get what we're pursuing, we still have a heart problem. Because it's also possible for us to experience the disappointment of actually getting what we want. You ever experienced that before? Seeing something, longing for it, craving it, doing all that it takes to get it, and then you get it, and it doesn't deliver? You're left wanting? One of the funniest actors in my, that, that I can think of um, is a guy named Jim Carrey. We know Jim Carrey, Ace Ventura. Um, it's a classic. I actually remember watching... I associate it with O.J. because I had the picture in the picture back in the day. It's my first time watching Ace Ventura. Side note here. Um, O.J., the car chase was going on as I'm watching the other. And so, uh, for whatever reason, those two things are kind of fused in my mind. But that, again, complete side note. Um, So Jim Carrey is up at the Golden Globes just a couple years ago, and he's presenting. And they announce his name over over the intercom. And he gets up and he says the following. I am two time." Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. And you know, when I sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey getting some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough It would finally be true, and I could stop this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. So he says this to Hollywood. He says this to all these actors. And of course, it's tongue-in-cheek, but the camera sort of goes out to the people, and they're laughing, but they're sort of that kind of awkward laugh when you you feel really like, "That, that, that hits a little too close to home, man. It's not exact. Yeah, you're you're kind of you're kind of in my business here, but because they they can relate, they know what he's saying is true, and can't we all, on some level, relate? Can we all appreciate the experience of setting our hopes on something that one day we will get? I'll get this, and it'll be enough, and it never is. And there's a reason for that, because the world cannot give us what we're truly after. Augustine said it best, God made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And so often we have to be reminded of this fact, right? Because we are so tempted to bow down and to worship anything and everything other than the one we were actually made to worship, the one who created us, the one who loves us. 
But, but speaking of statements that, that, that just are a little too true, you have to appreciate Laban's comment in verse 26. Take a look at verse 26. Jacob is confronting Laban about what he's done to him, and Laban's response is priceless. It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the older. By the way, this is the perfect comeback. The perfect comeback. You ever had that moment where, where for whatever reason, something just comes over you and someone's saying something and you respond with the words that need to be said. The perfect comeback. Or maybe you've been on the receiving end of that. This is the perfect comeback. Because you really don't know if Laban knows everything that took place with Jacob and Esau. But it's been seven years. Plenty of time for him to get wind of all that went down. We don't do that kind of thing in our country, unlike yours. When you younger siblings get the benefits that actually belong to the older sibling. Checkmate. And it sure shut Jacob up, because we don't hear him talking for like another seven years. I mean, he's (laughs) quiet. Jacob realizes that he's been had. That though he may have been quite the con man where he came from, he's out of his league dealing with this guy. It would cost him 14 years of his life to marry Rachel. The guy who was so savvy at the ways of the world has been beaten at his own game. He's been beaten into submission. Uncle Laban has defeated him. He's humbled him. Say uncle. This account is a perfect illustration of what Jesus meant when he said, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. If you want to play this game, if you want to spend your life seeking power, prestige, pleasure, possessions, all at the expense of other people, according to the ways of the world, then get ready. Because there will always be someone a little more savvy than you, a little more shrewd, someone who's willing to do what you can't or what you won't. And of course, We're supposed to see in this passage the similarities between what we studied last week and this. I mean, look, the notion of a blind father giving the blessing to the wrong son, and then just a couple of chapters later, the same guy in the dark with the wrong daughter, daughter, that's hard to miss. There's a comparison going on here. But it would be easy to sort of read this and think, wow, you know, that guy got what he deserved. He got a taste of his own medicine. There's, that, there's the moral to the story, the, the principle of retribution. But there's more to this story than that. Brings us to our second point, the gracious hand of God. Certainly, it is true. It is a biblical principle that, that, that whatever a man reaps, uh, the man reaps what he, what he also sowed. That God governs history That there's nothing that he does not see. And that there are consequences for our actions. But if we simply view this story as being about retribution, then we're going to have an incomplete and even flawed view of God. Because what we'll be left with is the idea that God is essentially just out to get us. He's out to get us. He's watching every move. He's waiting for us to trip up so that he can punish us. I suspect that some of us in this room have been exposed to this version of Christianity. 
This may even subtly or, 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 overt, or overtly be your operating paradigm. We may talk about the love and the, the grace of Jesus, but in reality, what really drives us is not love and affection for Christ. Rather, it is feelings of guilt and shame. The fear that, that God's going to punish me and the hope that if I do enough good stuff, I will keep this angry God off my back, appeased. Which leads to us constantly looking over our shoulders, living in fear. The good news is that's not the God of the Bible. It was a particular time in my life, a long time ago, when I sought counsel. Um, I, was, I was unhappy with my lot in life. And I needed some advice, or, or at the very least, I needed someone to tell me how justified I was in, in being upset. And so I described to this person, okay, here's what's going on. And I made this statement. I just don't understand what God is doing. He took me to the passage that we read earlier in our service from the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, it's a letter that was written primarily to Jewish Christians who were under persecution for following Jesus, who, who understandably would have been tempted to sort of renounce this whole Jesus thing and go back to Judaism where things are a little more calm in order to save themselves. So the author of Hebrews is attempting to convince these people Jesus is better and to encourage them in their journey. But in Hebrews chapter 12, the author provides more than just encouragement to these persecuted Christians. He begins to provide an explanation of sorts. He starts going after the the why question. Why is this happening to us? After all, God's sovereign, right? He's in control, right? And the author of Hebrews begins to discuss discipline. If you're like me, you, you hear the word discipline, and your mind immediately goes to punishment. Discipline equals punishment, retribution, payback for what you did. Now, certainly, that can be an aspect of discipline. We're most definitely seeing that, that with Jacob's dealings with Laban, he's getting a sort of retribution here. But here's the thing. That's not all that discipline is. It's extremely important to point out that, that in this whole discussion of discipline and what we read earlier, the author of Hebrews presents this as a father disciplining his children. He writes, for for what son is not disciplined by his father? And this word discipline, it it comes from the Greek term meaning child rearing. And certainly you you parents know that that there's much more involved with children than just punishing them, right? We're supposed to instruct them. We're supposed to train them. We're supposed to shape them. And that gets to what discipline is. Is. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, the first verse that, that Paul read earlier, the Christian life is compared to a race that we run, to an athletic endeavor. And as any athlete will tell you, I won't because I'm not an athlete, but, but there are those people out there, and they will tell you that there's training involved in order to compete. And according to verse 11, discipline is our being trained so that we are able to move forward in the Christian life. In other words, the hardships that we face, Scripture teaches us, as difficult as this may be, 
as much as I personally struggle with this, that these are God's instruments of discipline for his children so that they may run the race well in order for us to become more like Jesus. And that's the goal of discipline. The goal of discipline is for our good. And if that's the goal, then it's important to know what the goal of discipline isn't. If you're a child of God, if you've been adopted into his family, if you've been justified by placing your trust in the finished work of Christ, if Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God in your place, then you can be certain of this. Whatever suffering, whatever pain, whatever hurt, whatever loss that you experience in this life, and it may be any number of things, lessons that that you need to learn, preparation for what's to come, idols being painfully removed from your heart, or even, as we see here, consequences for, for stupid or sinful decisions you've made, or any number of things that we will never fully understand. It may be all of those, but there's one thing it's not. It's not God's wrath. It's not his condemnation. It's not his justice. Because Jesus Christ has taken that for you. Whatever your suffering may mean, if you are in Christ, it doesn't mean that God no longer loves you as his child. In the last chapter of Genesis, a little spoiler alert here, um, there's a theme that's been presented throughout this book. It's presented throughout the whole Bible, but but it culminates with Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, which says this, What men meant for evil, God meant for good. In other words, Even when the heavy hand of the world is at work, a hand that can be deceptive and deplorable and painful and frustrating, at the same time, even in the same act, God can, and more than that, God is using this for good purposes, for his people. We see this theme throughout Genesis, throughout Scripture, most notably we see it at the cross when God could take the very death of his son crucified by sinful and lawless men and make that the means to save us. For 14 years, Jacob will serve Laban. It's not right. It's not fair. Nor is it right or fair what Jacob did to Esau. But Jacob will endure, and God will use this. He will use this to help shape Jacob. He will use this so that the deceiver, having now been deceived, will become something else. You and I are not finished products either. All of us have our idols, our temptations, our struggles. All of us have lessons that we still need to learn. All of us have areas of our lives where we need to grow. But but through what Christ has done, we can be assured that whatever comes, that God is for us, not against us. Even in discipline. 
That whatever we encounter in this life, as difficult as it may be, is not condemnation. It is ultimately for our good, even when it feels like the exact opposite. And so we can trust him. We can rest in him. We can stop resisting him. We can even say uncle and submit to him. Let's pray. Gracious God, I confess to you that, that I struggle to believe this. Um, I, I don't like struggle. I don't like suffering. Um, but you have a purpose for it. And uh, you give us the faith to believe that you love us and that you are at work in us to the ultimate goal that we would become more and more like Jesus. Help us, we pray. All in Christ's name. Amen.